Hi, I'm Gabby. Welcome to the Happier Life Project, a brand new podcast to come from My Possible Self, the mental health and wellness app that has helped hundreds of thousands of users around the world manage their mental health through its clinically certified content in partnership with the Priory Healthcare. Now, we all have mental health and we all suffer with our mental health from time to time. Life is stressful, full of ups and downs, pressures, worries. And so the purpose of the Happier Life Project is to dive into some of these hurdles, fears, obstacles and reasons for distress and teach you simple, actionable tools and techniques to help you live a happier life. We've called it the Happier Life Project because it is an ongoing project. There's no magic fix to becoming happier all the time. But if you tune into this series regularly, listen to the advice of our fantastic mental health and wellness experts and implement the homework that they set at the end of every episode, then you will have in your back pocket a brilliant toolkit that will help you manage your mental health when times get tough. In today's episode, to launch the new podcast and to really set up the series, I am speaking to Max Strom, a three times TEDx speaker, global teacher, and author of two books, A Life Worth Breathing and There Is No App for Happiness. Max has spent years researching happiness, meaning, and connection. And it turns out we have been chasing it in all the wrong places. Ready to find a healthier, happier you? Let's get started. Welcome, Max, to the Happier Life Project. Now, I think you're probably already aware, but just for everybody listening, the Happier Life Project is a new podcast series from My Possible Self, who are a mental health and wellness app in the UK that uses clinically certified content to help users improve their thoughts, feelings and behaviour. Since the start of the pandemic, we made the app completely free for everybody because it's run by um, a lovely family in Harrogate in Yorkshire. And they said everybody should have some form of access to mental health support. So that's who we are. Wonderful. Yeah. And um, we've completed a, a, a podcast series, which we called the same name, My Possible Self. And that really delved into a lot of the sort of more, most common um, mental health illnesses. And then we looked at it and we took a step back and we said, okay, so we've covered all these major topics, but everybody has mental health and everybody struggles with their mental health. So the purpose of the Happier Life Project is to help everybody alleviate some of that mental suffering through various tips, tricks, tools, whatever you want to call it, things that you can have in your back pocket that you might not necessarily know that you have yourself and it's all within you. So when I discovered you, Max, I was like, I think even this might even become the first episode of the new series because everything that you teach and you stand for is is basically, I think, what I've just synopsis if that's a word to you it's what we're trying to do it's we're trying to strive towards becoming a happier person when we've got all this unhappiness surrounding us in terms of internally and externally so three times TEDx speaker global teacher author of two awesome books a life worth breathing and there is no app for happiness I want to ask you uh, in a little bit about Breathe to Heal and also about your uh, inner access program that you do. But first of all, I watched a talk you did on YouTube 
And this sentence stopped me in, in my tracks and I thought, well, this is the great jumping off point for the, the podcast. Happiness is the subject of our lifetime, yet we rarely discuss it. So let's discuss it. <laughs> yes, thank you for inviting me. I, I really appreciate you uh, having me on. It's a great honor. And uh, I'm happy to discuss these things uh, because I do believe it's a subject of our lifetime. And we talk about things that are fun or um pleasurable and sometimes interesting curiosities, but we rarely talk about happiness. And I challenge anyone listening to this to ask someone close to them, say, how would you define happiness in about three sentences for you and watch them stumble around because they haven't been asked that question ever, or maybe not since college or something like that. And so mm -hmm. if you ask them about their favorite TV show, they can rattle this off immediately or their favorite sports team not what brings them happiness at the deepest level. So this mm. indicates to me that it's it's some, somewhat of a strangely untouched subject. Like we don't even um, believe that we deserve it. So why would we discuss it? Or it's not readily available. And, and maybe some of it has to do with our, um, I was going to say ancestors, but a little bit, not quite that far back, our parents and our grandparents from the war. Because uh, I was talking to someone in Germany about this just the other day. He's in his early 40s, and he said that he doesn't know anyone that ever talks about happiness in Germany uh, ever mm -hmm. as a possibility. And I thought they must have inherited that from after the war, where all they could focus on was not starving and rebuilding the, all the rubble into, back in the buildings. And similarly in Britain and, and other places, we have to get on with it now. We have to soldier on and get on mm -hmm. with it, get us out, ourselves out of this emergency. And I think. Perhaps we've inadvertently passed this along to to the children than us. Uh, well, I'm in a different generation, but you, know, you understand what I'm saying. We, we've inherited this way of looking at the world where we think about working, we think about our holiday and the weekend, but we don't think about, well, ultimately, what, what could I do to bring meaning to my life? Because it wasn't an option in uh, past generations. Yeah. Do you think then, because... I imagine that we all believe that we are doing things to make us happy, time off at the weekend, planning a holiday, but it's those quick fixes, isn't it? It's that like something to look forward to yeah. for that that hit. I mean, you said we're not a happy society, and I think this was quite a while ago, perhaps one in, in one of your TED Talks. Yes, 2013, I believe. Right, and you talked then about the decline of personal happiness in society, and so here we are nine, nine years later, and it's still the same, if not worse. It's worse, for sure. It's worse. The, it's worse. The, the pandemic uh, really had its way with us in terms of uh, destroying our sense of, of tribal connection, and which we need. And even when we're unaware of, of it, it's something we crave. And uh, so we, we, uh, many of us experience deep loneliness and um, in some cases, the word would be alienation, which I think is different than loneliness. To me, alienation means that you've been pushed out or you're held out of contact rather than you've chosen to walk away. And for example, if I have a significant other and I go on a journey, I, I would miss her. That's loneliness. Or let's say I don't have a significant other, but I would like to have one. I'm lonely. But alienation would be I have a significant other and she breaks up the relationship. So it pushes me away and I don't want to be pushed away. I want the relationship. That would be alienation. Mm -hmm. 
So COVID did this with us where, you know, you have to stay away from the people you love. You're being pushed out, you're being pushed away, you're being confined. And uh, this existentially uh, is a threat to us uh, because we have an instinct as a species to stay in the tribe. Because in, in ancient times when we were hunter-gatherers, if we were um, pushed out of a tribe, we would not likely survive the year because we need mm. each other literally to survive, to, to eat and to not die and to help each other with our wounds if we have them. So if you just imagine, for example, if you're hunter-gatherer on your own now and you get the flu and you can't hunter-gather for three or four weeks, that's it. You're not going to have the strength to hunt again and, and save yourself. So we, we have these uh, built in us, built into us genetically, this need to be a part of the group. And that's why when um, teenagers or preteens are shunned or mobbed, as they call it in mainland Europe, and they're pushed out, they, they, to them, their, their life is over. And that's why the suicide rate is so high now, because of the mm -hmm. shunning online. It, it touches a, um, a genetic need and a genetic fear. Yeah, that's making me think of something the um, director of the company shared last night with me. And it was an article about there's more teenagers now on a form of like um, anti-anxiety or antidepressant medication than than there ever has been. And I guess it's, it is that tribal thing, isn't it? And we're so digitally savvy. I feel like now we're, we're navigating out of the pandemic. We're still applying because it's cheaper to work from home for a lot of these big companies. So they've just closed down the office. And so there's a lot more remote working happening, but then we're just isolating ourselves more, more and more in this way, aren't we? And, and then I suppose, does that make us a bit awkward then when we do have these social encounters? Because I actually remember when I first went to a bar after the, you know, the pan we came out of the lockdown and I didn't know how to behave. Uh -huh. I was like, I don't know how to interact with all, I'm loving it, but I've forgotten what to do. Yes. I felt a bit awkward. Yes, I think we all did. We all did. It, it was fascinating. Yeah. It was a fascinating brief study because we adapted fairly quickly. But that, yeah. that initial feeling, it's like first getting out of the hospital. If you've been in the hospital for a week and you walk out into the sunshine, it feels yeah. bizarre a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> it really does. Absolutely. Just going back to the topic of happiness, you said pray for happiness, not something that we think will make us happy. Yes, that was a message to people who pray. So, okay. or, or, or I mean, pray, pray, prayer takes, yeah, takes many shapes yes. and forms, doesn't it? Prayer. Yes. So whether you have a, a vision board or you, you pray to a deity, um, whatever it is, my point is, does it make more sense, let's say, if you think you need a Maserati to be happy? Why would you pray for some sort of intervention to get you a Maserati? Why don't you just pray to be happy? And mm -hmm. so if you think the universe or a deity is looking out for you, which is a fine thing to believe, I'm not criticizing you for it, why don't you let that deity or that universe decide what's best for you, as opposed to saying, well, I'm pretty sure God, a Maserati would be the best thing for me. Maybe not. Maybe, you know, be careful what you wish for kind of thing. Maybe if you mm. focused on, well, what would, what would make me happy? When I say happy, I mean at the deepest level. I'm talking about a meaningful life. Mm -hmm. mm. You, th you say as well that happiness is a choice. It is. And I think 
many people would say, of course I choose to be happy. Who doesn't choose to be happy? But I'm not. <laughs> Are we we're just looking about it wrong because we've not the education isn't there. We're just Partly. Partly. Um there's so little education on this and we have to establish a baseline to even discuss these things really you know if someone knocks on my door and says i want to talk to you about god the first thing i say well before we talk about that could you define exactly what you mean when you say god otherwise we can't have a conversation so similarly uh, what i try to do with folks is to get them to identify what their core needs are and uh they're pretty universal you know, I, I have a list. I can give it to you in 15 seconds if you'd like to hear it. Yes, please. Okay. So we need tribal and family acceptance and safety. When I say safety, I mean physical safety. So we, we need to know that our tribe accepts us. Number two, we need to feel seen and heard for who we are, not what our mask tells people we are, but who we really are. Once we're seen, and heard by our family and tribe, including when we're in a tragedy. Uh, this is deeply meaningful to us. Three, to love and be loved. I don't have to explain that. Four, mm -hmm. a meaningful occupation or social role. Um, social role could be like motherhood. You know, you don't get paid for that, but mm -hmm. it's an extremely meaningful social role. And the last one, which not everyone reaches, is some sort of spiritual connection or transcendence. Um, mm -hmm. Some people have this in their life and others don't. I think it's one of the core needs of the human being. I'll give you a, a brief example. I know a woman who was about 30 years old, an extremely capable woman, 30 years old, spoke several languages, seems to do everything well in life. And on top of this, and more importantly, perhaps, she's very kind and gentle. She gets involved with a man, I'll call him Mark. And they fell in love. They went on a vacation together. When he came back, he said, you know what happened, Max? He said, this woman is unbelievable, but she doesn't believe that she is somehow. It's, it's as if she's grown up without any kind of validity. So she has sleep problems, I found out. She could only sleep about five hours a night, couldn't fall asleep well, would wake up early, couldn't go back to sleep. She was taking medication for this. She was also taking medication for anxiety. So... I said, you know what we're going to do tonight? I'm going to massage your feet so that you fall asleep. She couldn't believe it. No one had ever done that for her before. So you massaged your feet. Said, I said, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm not a massage therapist. I just figured if I have love in my hands, she'll feel it. 15 minutes each foot, she was out of sleep. And she slept a little longer. So due to that success, he did it every night for a month. She stopped taking sleep medication. And she stopped taking uh, anxiety medication a couple of months after that. So wow. what is the cause of our anxiety? What is the cause of our sleep medication? Uh, and what do we need to do in this life to alleviate it? Is it a chemical problem? Or do we just need someone to show some love and that we matter in this world? We all need foot massages. <laughs> Emotional medication is still on the rise, like I just touched upon with the teenagers, the staggering statistics, but it has been rather normalized now. Uh, there was an example you gave when you were talking to somebody who was going through a really bad time. I think there was a marriage breakdown, unhappy at work, and um, she'd gone to the doctor and he prescribed her medication. And you'd said, 
know your body's having a natural response to a really traumatic time. She should be anxious. She should be depressed. And she was trying to, you know, the doctor was prescribing something to numb something that was normal. And there is basically another way. Do you still feel like that now? And Yes. Yes, I, I would word it a bit differently, but um, the way I would put it is this. I'm grateful that we live in a time where we have emotional medications, but I don't know anyone who wants to live off them the rest of their life or to have their children live, have to live off of them in order to function in this world, not as a first mm-hmm. choice. Yet it's becoming normalized for us to, whenever we feel any emotional pain, to immediately medicate ourselves rather than go through the process that uh, nature has created for us. We have this process we could call grief. And when I say grief, I don't only mean when someone has passed away, but at the end of a relationship or um, you lose your home, any time life takes something from you against your will mm-hmm. and it makes you incredibly sad, it makes you feel unsafe, it makes you feel um, out of control. So we call that a trauma or a tragedy. And uh, when we have these, uh, we go through this grieving process. The very first thing we did when we were born was to cry. We inhaled and exhaled in a cry immediately. And that's the language of the infant to uh, alert the parents that uh, something's wrong, I need something. And so when we hear a baby cry, instinctively we go to that baby, we, we have a craving to, to soothe the baby, even if it's not yours. You know, if you're in a restaurant, a baby keeps crying, keeps getting your attention, doesn't it? Somehow we, we socialize, we turn that around so that by the time that child, let's say, is a 20-year-old boy, man, and he cries, we say, oh, we should probably leave him alone. He needs to be alone now because he's crying. But a cry is an involuntary, instinctual way to, to let everybody around you know you're not well, whether it's mm-hmm. physical or emotional. When people cry, we shouldn't leave them alone. We should go, go to them. And we've lost this in Northern European society. It's not like that everywhere. I talked recently to a man uh, who was in one of my workshops, and he's from uh, Africa. He said, where I'm from, the, the village, if you had a, a trauma or a tragedy, the entire village would come over to your, your small house. And those that couldn't fit inside would surround the house and just sit down in this cluster around your house, everybody would be oh, there yeah. to look yeah. after I think people are scared to tap into that pain as well. So we want to do whatever we can to distract ourselves from it, to numb ourselves from it, to pretend it's not there. But also we know it's gnawing away at us, but then we still continue on this path of avoidance. So what do you have to say to that? And if we are going to go inwards, do we just have to confront the pain head on and let rip? (laughs) Well, partly, yes. We have to suffer some pain. We have to identify that grief and depression are not the same thing. Mm -hmm. Grief is a natural process. Depression is what happens when you deny yourself of that process. Oh, wow. Right. So, yes, we have to go through the pain of um, grief but it is decreased when it is shared and not hidden in a room. And we actually become hostile to our own grief, where we hate that we're grieving and we try to shut it down. And this is mm-hmm. what creates, for example, panic attacks or depression. Now, 
the heart of the problem is is this i believe you know you know i give a lot of talks to groups of people they said that before covid mm-hmm. i've just started mm-hmm. doing it again and just before covid I, I gave a talk to about 500 people in amsterdam and i asked this question i said to everyone please raise your hand if you learned at some point in your life cpr and about 70 percent of the people raised their hands i said thank you hands down now Raise your hand if when you were a child or a young adult, you were taught how to deal with your own grief or the grief of others in a positive way. No hands. Mm-hmm. There are 500 people there. So what that means to me is, if someone's heart stops, we know what to do. If someone's heart breaks, we have no idea. We're yeah. totally at a loss. We're untrained unskilled and so we become awkward or we leave the person behind and we turn our back on them or we just avoid them because we don't know what to do we don't want to make it worse we don't want everything to be awkward that's just Mm. lack of knowledge so if we could just begin educating uh, each other and then our children on how to interact with each other during the time of crisis we could turn things around i think in a significant way fairly quickly and i say this because i see it one of the things i do in my longer workshops is i teach people these things and there's significant movement in their life from that point on in some cases they cease to have panic attacks from that point on for example people who have several a day wow you believe we can train our emotions and and get a handle on them I'm still a bit dubious about this, but I'm willing to give it a like a go. If we could control our feelings, then surely we would control our feelings, right? Am I probably I'm probably not saying this in the right way. We all do to a certain extent right now. I mean, there are times when we feel like punching someone in the face and we don't. Or Yes. You know, or getting out of the car and attacking the person in the other car who just was shouting at us. Yeah. So but we keep that anger inside, don't we? We we might control it outside, but inside it's it's there, it's festering. Yes, you're absolutely right. But there are ways of training not the emotion, but somewhat more how we perceive what is happening around us. This is the essence of Buddhism, for example. So let me give you a very uh, concrete example by what I mean. Let's use road rage as an example, because mm-hmm. everyone has felt it, even if they've never acted on it. Mm-hmm. So if you had a really stressful week, and then an especially stressful day, and now you've missed lunch, so you're also hangry, and then someone that is rude to you, you're much more likely to act out than if you just mm-hmm. had a wonderful week, you fell in love last night, you just had a wonderful lunch, you're on top of the world, and someone does the exact same thing, you just think, oh, that guy has a problem, and you forget about it instantly. So part mm-hmm. of how we react to the world emotionally is based on our internal state at the moment. So if you have a practice that continually puts you in a calm state every day, yeah, then you're not going to be as reactive. So it's almost like preemptive emotional control as opposed to in the moment. Does that make sense? It absolutely does. And when you talk about a practice every day, then this is sort of getting into what you 
run so many workshops and courses on and teach is breathing to heal. If we can start there with the, like how the breath can help us get into that state of, um, I think people understand a bit more now about breath work and, and it can be really important, but I think it's still quite hard to get into that place of Zen for many that struggle with the monkey mind. I don't think people understand breathing any more than they ever did, but they're accepting it more now because people in positions of power are saying that it's good. So for example, if the mm -hmm. SAS starts using it and the American Navy SEALs start using it, and then we hear other famous people are using it, we think, oh, you know, now, now there's testimonials. That's how they sell, we call them trainers, those shoes, right? Mm -hmm. if, if a famous basketball player weighs, wears those, then you want yeah. those. So, you know, if Oprah in America says something's good, then we start doing it. So breathing yep. has in the last few years reached that uh, critical mass, that uh, zeitgeist where people are accepting it now as not weird or fringe, but a viable um, exercise regimen you can use. Mm. Um, so the funny thing is, even the scientists, the neurologists to a certain degree that I will say the neuroscientists and the neurologists don't completely understand how it works. There are a lot of things, a lot of phenomenon in the human system and the brain that we know are there, such as we dream, but neurologists don't know why if we are prevented from dreaming, we go insane. There are a lot of unanswered questions about the brain mm -hmm. still. And one of them is yeah. how breath and the, and the emotions intermingle but we know mm. that they do. So for example, for each emotion, there's a type of breath. If you start getting angry and you're uh, starting to get fed up with someone, the way you speak is in this erratic sort of, well, that's not what you said. No, that's, you hear this huffing and puffing and erratic sort of holding yeah. your breath, right? And then you think that's an angry breath. And if someone is uh, laughing or happy, they start laughing, which is a, lung function if someone becomes sexually aroused notice next time this happens anybody's listening notice how you <laughs> breathe because it changes radically even if you are um, not moving much you'll notice your breath changes dramatically when you become aroused uh, sexually mm. um, so whether it's a panic attack which is a breathing event or sexual arousal or laughter mm -hmm. or shouting at a football match uh, the lungs and our emotions are intermingled all the time. Mm. So, like we do a big sigh, don't we? We sigh, yes. if we're maybe a bit frustrated, you know. Yes. It's like, <sighs> and we have different types of sighs. We have frustrated sigh, like you dropped your phone in the toilet, and you have the <laughs> yeah, and you have the kind of sigh where uh, you finish a hard day's work, everything went really well, and now you get in a hot tub. That's a different kind of sigh, completely. Wow. Yeah. Gosh, you're making me think about the breath in such a different way. So by doing some of the, the techniques and the exercises that you teach, I mean, I have to say I tried one, I think it was on, on your YouTube or your website. It was four minutes to decompress. And I tried that one and I, um, I was sat up, but I not, I kind of felt, felt myself falling asleep and my head dropped. And I kind of, you know, when you do the, the nodding thing, like right at the end and I was like, whoa, <laughs> Yes, it works. So, so I really relaxed in four minutes. <laughs> you were probably exhausted when you did it, and it just allowed you to to relax and fall into that need of sleep that you had. 
Yeah, but I think maybe there's not enough good teachers out there because there are a lot of apps now. We have a lot of competitors uh, or, you know, uh, there's a lot of resources available. And so you can type into YouTube something like breathing exercises and perhaps we're mimicking somebody who can't take us that deeply into breath work like you can. Well, yeah, this... um pandemic converted a lot of yoga teachers suddenly into breath experts. So almost every yoga teacher in the world suddenly called himself a breath expert trying to survive. So there are a lot of people yeah. who don't know much about it who are trying to make mm. doing it. That's unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah. And that for me, I really connected during, ironically, during the pandemic with yoga, but it was the second time I tried it. The first time I tried it was in my local gym and I didn't connect at all. Mm -hmm. I was doing it for the wrong reasons. I was doing it for the yoga button, for the physical, you know, the vanity. Um, And then when the pandemic hit and I was working for um, a very big corporation, crazy out, they really maximized the fact that we were working remotely and it was eat, sleep, work, repeat. And I was on the verge of some kind of breakdown. And then I just thought, I'm going to give yoga another go. And then I just got lucky with a teacher I found who was in San Francisco again because of the pandemic. We had access then to to different teachers and um, and then I was completely hooked. But it was because I found the right teacher and because I was in a place of receiving the teachings as well, which had nothing to do with how I physically looked. That's exactly right. The teacher is even perhaps more important than the method, I would say, sometimes. There are great doctors and poor doctors. There are great uh, acupuncturists and lousy acupuncturists. And yeah. Whatever, massage therapists, any, any profession, plumbers. And so... Uh, I advise anyone who wants to try yoga or breathing exercises is try at least five teachers and and Mm. try to find out who your friends recommend. And then you'll be more Mm. likely to find someone that you resonate with and you'll have a fantastic experience. Mm, Absolutely. Happiness is the daily experience of a meaningful life. This is your definition of happiness. Yes. What does it mean to you, Max, to be a well-being? We use the word well-being a lot if we separate the two words. Well, a couple of things. For for one thing is we hear this term sustainable a lot, and it's usually in the context of talking about the environment, the planet, things like that. But we also need a sustainable life, an individual life. We need a sustainable um, daily life. We need a sustainable home life. And so to live in such a way that we would be happy to teach our children, this is how to live your life. There are so many parents where I say, would would you advise your children to live their daily life the way you live it? With your anti-anxiety drugs and and your alcohol at night to compensate and your lack of sleep you don't know how to sleep anymore and your panic attacks and you're working 60 hours a week is that how you want your mm-hmm. children to live and they go no 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 of course not so well you're teaching them that's how to live because that's mm-hmm. what you're modeling mm-hmm. so we need a sustainable daily life a sustainable sleep that's part of it and then the, the other part is making sure that we we live in such a way that brings us meaning and that's a little different and a little individualized for each person. Yeah. 
Food for thought, indeed. Gosh, I just think, where does one start with this? Because we're we're kind of, you know, bills are going up. More people have financial worries than don't. There's all this external stress, isn't there? And loud noise and then stimulus and then comparison being the thief of joy as well. And we're just kind of so overwhelmed with all these messages that actually, it's like you said, we need to sort of take a step back from that, breathe, reflect and show mercy. Yeah, and mercy to ourselves, to forgive ourselves for not having obtained what we think we should have by now, for not being the perfect person that we think we should be, to forgive ourselves and and give ourselves the permission to start over again and give ourselves permission to grieve what we have lost. And to, Mm -hmm. if I may use a, um, a UK term, you remember the the blitz spirit is that what it's called the blitz spirit i think it was the blitz spirit it was during the blitz in world war ii when uh, london okay. and other areas were being bombed during the war um the country came together and really unified socially look, looking after the children moving the children out to the countrysides where they're safe helping each other after the bombings uh and there are people they've interviewed from this time saying that was the best time of my life. It's like the, the worst time of their life, the bombing, people were unfortunately dying or being harmed or losing their homes or businesses. In terms of meaning, people gain great meaning during this catastrophe by coming together and creating this tremendous tribal unity. And this is something that uh, we are missing now. We've become so politically divided and so on. Uh, we need we need that blitz spirit again, where mm-hmm. we come together, uh, and it, whatever the external enemy is, whether it's bombs or the economy uh, collapsing or another war in Europe, which we have now, whatever it is, uh, to come together around it and help each other, look after each other. This gives mm-hmm. us great meaning, and to. To, to be online is only as much as necessary. Mm-hmm. So I'm not saying don't go online. I'm saying go online only as much as necessary because ultimately what brings you meaning, you're not going to find there. There is no yeah. app for happiness, as I like to say. <laughs> Which is also the name of one of Maxwell's books. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not against but- apps because you have a wonderful app and I also have an app. But I just, yeah. it's, it's a, um, you know, it, I'm trying to no, make it's, a point. Yeah, something I hadn't considered as well is the ripple effect. Like when we, we're angry and we're angry at someone, it's actually not just the anger we feel and they feel, it's that kind of ripple effect of irritability that filters out throughout anybody that we become in contact with and having a short fuse. That's exactly right. Yeah. And you said that the same can be said for healing as well. So I guess going a little bit more into like um, some takeaways for our listeners in terms of like what we can do, would you say the first step is exploring breath work to help us get into a state where we're perhaps thinking a bit more rationally? Yes, absolutely. 15 to 30 minutes a day of breath work will have a deep and lasting effect on you, including improving your sleep. So it's like one-stop shopping. You get a lot of things from 
learning breath work. So mm. you will not only be calmer, but you will teach yourself how to relax again. A lot of people don't even know how to relax without having a, a couple of pints, you know, they, like that's relaxing. <laughs> without it, they don't know yeah. how to do it. It's like a yeah. child who's never learned how to self-soothe and go to sleep. Adults right. forget. So we learn to uh, more deeply relax at will. We learn to trust ourselves because we can do that. We now know I have the power to at will make myself relax. It helps us to sleep much better, which then gives us more energy during the day. The better you sleep, the more energy you have. Therefore, the less things you need to do to get energy, like power drinks or uh, lots of coffee, things like that. Mm. So it's win, 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 win. Mm. And then from that new mindset, you will react differently to people around you because you, you won't have underslept that night. You won't have had too much caffeine trying to wake up. You won't have a, a year's worth of stress just ready to come out in road rage or something like that. Mm. By changing your internal state, it changes how you react to everyone around you, you and therefore it improves your relationships. Mm -hmm. And then something that was a massive aha moment for me when I was, because I got the audio, because I just think you've got such a dreamy voice, Max. I wanted to listen to you narrate the book, A Life Worth Breathing. And uh, you said, when we show mercy on others, we show mercy on ourselves. So with the next step from we, we've calmed ourselves down, we've taken a breath, is it that forgiveness and not just jump into rage? And even if we don't understand why that person is perhaps directing loads of anger at us and it's making us angry because we don't really know why or we don't agree with them. We're still to show mercy and forgive them. I, I'm a big believer in the power of forgiveness. I have an entire workshop on this that I've been giving for years. But uh, forgiveness is uh, more accessible a little time after the incident. And the incident itself, it's very hard to be forgiving. If someone has done something really egregious to you, um, it, it depends on how severe the the action is of the person who's harming you. But if it's something small or ridiculous, you know, like somebody in another car shouting at you or making a gesture with their hand, ultimately it's not going to change your life. But depending on your internal state, you can think. That person's having a bad day. I know what that person's feeling like. I've felt like that. Mm -hmm. So I'm just going to let it pass. And I'll calm myself down because I know how to do it. And then maybe I'll be able to forgive him or her later. But right now I don't forgive them, but I'm not going to let them steal my peace. Mm -hmm. That's another way of looking at it is, are, are you going to give mm -hmm. that person the power to take away from you your peace? Because that's, that's a lot of power you're giving that person. I'm going to let that stranger take all this calm I have. I'm not going to, I'm going to, have to let somebody do that. They don't, they don't get to do that with me. Now, there are severe things that happen, of course. I'm, I'm speaking more generally. Yeah. But, but I think um, your listeners will understand the difference in what I'm saying. Hmm. You do offer quite a lot of online workshops. I've actually signed up to the one on the 20th of August, Learn to Breathe, because I thought I need to start from scratch here. Great, great. <laughs> but yeah, after 
doing your video on on YouTube and I was like in four minutes you did completely it was quite transformational and I did I was open but I was not sure what I was going to get out of it and then and then I thought okay I need to I need to kind of explore this further you've also I noticed got an online workshop discover your life purpose obviously breathe to heal and you do the inner access um yoga as well so that is that is that like hatha but not it's actually it's a combination isn't it it's breathing yoga tai chi some some teachers they learn a system and then they teach it the rest of their life and and god bless them we need folks that are like that i'm not that type of teacher i'm the type of teacher who learns something and then because i'm an innovator i try to see if i can improve it and also use um, tools from other experiences from my own life. So it's become a synthesis of different types of yoga and also Chinese Qigong and movement therapy and things that I've just learned myself through my own path in this life. So it's my own uh, idiom or medium, you could say. And uh, it seems to work very well for people it's not complicated. It's actually mm-hmm. extremely simple. It's little things that you do during your practice, even the way you think about what you're doing, that change it completely. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, you can breathe very mechanically and sound like a machine, you know, or you can exhale in a way that you are totally relaxing on purpose every time you exhale. That, that will be a different breathing experience than the person next to you breathing like a machine. Just like a fake hug or a real hug. They look sort of the yeah. same. The experience is entirely different depending on your yeah. intention and some little things. So for people to find you, it's maxstrom.com. That's where basically it's sort of your holy grail of information, isn't it? Because there's a lot that people can sift through in terms of yeah. you know, in-person workshops, courses, online courses. You know, there's a whole thing. So and live um, streams as well, yes live streams if you go to maxstrom.com you'll find everything even the social media sites for me yeah well i'm looking forward to doing this online course and to to learn how to breathe properly on the 20th of august i've got one final question for you and this is going to bring the conversation full circle and back to the title of the podcast um my plan is to ask every guest in this series to set us some like homework and i know you've already shared a lot um, but what is a simple project or task that we can all do today that will help us on our journey towards building a happier life? Learn to breathe and learn to grieve. Okay. Learn to breathe and learn to grieve. Got it. <laughs> Max, thank you. I feel like we've only just scratched the surface there, but thank you very much for your time and wisdom. And yeah, I am really enjoying exploring all your research and teachings. It's quite fascinating stuff. So, Gabby, thank you very thank much. You. Uh, and uh, if you want to have another conversation, I'd love to you ask great questions. I really enjoyed it. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. I'll keep that in mind for sure. I would like that. Thanks, Max. Thank you, Gabby. 
Hello, it's Gabby back with you. Thanks again to Max Strom for a wonderful conversation and thank you to you for making it to the end of the first episode of the Happier Life Project. Now, if you are suffering with your mental health, there is a crisis button on the My Possible Self app, which will signpost you to the correct information for immediate expert advice. And to those of you who are listening on one of the podcast platforms, the My Possible Self app is completely free to download, so you don't need to worry about it costing you anything if you haven't already got it. Make sure you subscribe and leave a review if you found this episode helpful. And to find and follow us on social media, we are at My Possible Self, and I've been at Radio Gabby. Until the next one, do take care. Bye for now.